first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Welcome to the first physical media episode of 2022. Last year, I closed out our second season with a trio of these episodes, great conversations with good friends, including Walter Cha and William Boyle and Nikki Dolson, among others, and had a ball. I think the highlight a lot of fans have told me was having my good friend Rob Belushi and his mother, Sandy, joining me to discuss Reds, which is Sandy's favorite movie. And for like 40 years, Rob had resisted watching it, but he decided to do so for Sandy and myself. And we had a really funny, very off-the-wall conversation about Reds. So if you haven't heard that episode, you should. Another one that I really loved was, I mean, they were all great. So if you've missed them, you should probably go back and listen to those three because they were really fun. Was the first one where I talked about Straight Time with Blake Howard. I love the movie Straight Time. If you haven't seen it, you really need to check it out. Also, I had Kate Gabrielle on the same episode talking about Scream and myself going on and on about my love for Cameron Crowe and, you know, talking up Vanilla Sky. It isn't almost famous. It isn't Say Anything or Jerry Maguire, but it deserves more love than it has received. And I stand by that. But the reason I'm bringing up that episode in particular is because you are going to hear my good friend Kate Gabrielle joining me in this episode to discuss a wonderful Hitchcock movie, Stage Fright, which kind of like Vanilla Sky is a little bit underrated, underdiscussed. No, it isn't Vertigo, but it's damn entertaining. And you'll hear us articulate why in a good, I'd say like 25 to 30 minute conversation. Kate was the only friend who wanted to join in this round because the films that I was sent were maybe not the most accessible or uh, the most exciting to some of my good pals. There are a couple of great ones in here, but they were unfamiliar with them. And it was a thing of, do I need to buy a box set because I can't see these films? So I am going solo here. I do apologize. You're going to be hearing me 
uh, blather on, but I'll try to be brief with these because it is just me. So kicking things off, we're going to dive into that box set, which is Lies and Deceit is the name of it. Five films by Claude Chabrol. Claude Chabrol was a film critic before he was a director, of course. He was among, you know, Truffaut and Godard, uh, one of the Cahiers de Cinema critics. He was the first one of the group. Everybody kind of like thinks of Breathless and 400 Blows as really kicking off the French New Wave. But it was actually Chabrol and this great film that doesn't really get remembered called Le Beau Serge, which is a Criterion title now, and it's a really good addition, so I recommend that. It came out in 1958 and really kicked off that wonderful French New Wave, which is one of my favorite schools of filmmaking. The films in this box set, however, are not the French New Wave titles. They're kind of his 80s to early 90s period, and I got to be totally honest here, even though the box set is beautiful and there is a wonderful booklet of essays and production notes, and I love all the critical essays. I was fortunate enough to contribute a critical essay last year to a British box set of film noir, and it was like a highlight of my career so far. So I always really appreciate all of the critical essays. There's wonderful commentary tracks in this set. but Honestly, I would only recommend two of these titles out of five. So when you're laying down like serious change for this, you kind of have to weigh how much do I really value these two movies? So it is tough, but we'll get into that. The five films that are included are Copo Van or Cup of Wine from 1985, Inspector Laverdeen from 86. Both of those titles involve the same Inspector Laverdeen character. Then there's Madame Bovary from 1991, Betty from 92, and Torment from 1994. To me, the highlight of the entire box is Torment from 1994. It starred Emmanuel Bayard and Francois Clouzet, who I remember most from Tell No One, which is a film that I recommend to like everyone. Tell, uh, I tell everyone about Tell No One, essentially. And I mean, Clouzet has been in stuff forever and he's great. Bayard is wonderful. She was, in case you're like trying to put a visual uh, with the name. She was Tom Cruise's object of affection and the one who played John Voight's wife in the first Mission Impossible movie. She was also in this wonderful movie by Rivette called La Belle No Suisse, which I reviewed. It was one of my most read reviews the year it came out because I talked about muses and artists and uh, men and women and sexual dynamics and power plays, which brings us back to torment. That is very much my thing, as my friend Travis Woods would probably say, like, I'm back on my bullshit of essentially um, any games that men and women play with, uh, you know, sexual jealousy is a theme that I kind of go back to again and again in my writing. I find it really fascinating to look at gender and sex. And Torment is just a wealth of that. It, like it's, it's 
wonderful if you're fascinated by that. Essentially, you have Emmanuel Bayard, who's one of the most like beautiful women ever. And the movie kind of proves like there is such a thing as having too beautiful or sexy of a wife. It uh, might drive you crazy. And that is what the question is with Clouzet. And also just his inability to trust his gorgeous wife who loves him so much. And he really should. Although should he? Or should she trust him in return? Those are questions that get asked. He is somebody who runs like an old hotel. He falls in love. They get married. And then he starts losing his mind. Or maybe it's one of those things like you're only paranoid if it's not happening. But if it is, then you're onto something. He starts getting really obsessed with this idea of whether she's stepping out on him. And starts like following her around and it's very stalkery, but you're not sure what's going on or who's telling the truth. And it's just a really interesting film. There's so many twists and turns. It's, you know, seriously sexy, of course. And it's just a great one. Chabrol has always been fascinated by these topics. I will say, honestly, he is a filmmaker I struggle with sometimes because there is sort of a little bit of misogyny that runs through the films. Or if you don't want to like say that far, you can just say a definite mistrust of beautiful women or, you know, um, gender roles. He, he's always been fascinated by uh, these women. Some of his earliest films uh, are like, you know, World's Most Beautiful Swindlers, Les Bonnes Femmes, Bluebeard. So this is a recurring issue with Chabrol. But I think it might be one of those things like with Peckinpah and De Palma and some of these men who have this sort of thing in them where, you know, it is there or Lynch even where they love women, but at the same time, there is like this volatile thing under the surface that, you know, freaks you the fuck out. And maybe later in life, he's starting to reevaluate these relationships he's had in his past or any stereotypes he's made about women. So I think Torment is just really delicious. And I wish you could see it separately. I don't know that it is available. You might want to check wherever you are if it is or not. I was told they kind of pulled all the digital versions of the film, at least in the States, off of when the box set hit because they wanted you to buy this box set from Arrow. And the editions of these films are just gorgeous. The restorations, they're stunning. They've really never looked better at least they've never looked better from the, the clips and things that I'd seen before, because these five were all new to me. Uh, Copo Van, I would say, was pretty good. Average. Inspector Labardine drove me nuts. I was ready to like turn it off within 20 minutes. It's one of those movies where everybody is just too fucking weird. And they're weird like for no reason except to be weird. And it's kind of like quirk for quirk's sake, which, you know, is the worst kind of quirky. So uh, Labradine, also there's like this kind of homophobia thing going through it. It's very twisted. Chabrol 
is a Hitchcockian obsessive and a Hitchcockian filmmaker. I really love his newer stuff. I wrote a piece for my buddy Jed Ayer's website, Hardboiled Wonderland, on French language neo-noirs. And one of them was a Chabrol that was made, I want to say like 2000 or 2001, called Nightcap or Merci pour le chocolat, which is the dumbest title ever. I wish they would have just called it Nightcap. But even that is kind of spoilery. I don't know. They got to work on that title. But that is a brilliant film. Also, he made one called The Bridesmaid, which if I remember correctly, was a Ruth Rendell. So he put all of his Hitchcockian eggs in a basket for that. It's great. He also made Flower of Evil. La Ceremony is good. La Ceremony, Nightcap. Some of these star Isabelle Huppert, who's definitely one of his muses. Isabelle Huppert is basically the best French actress working today, or at least up there along with, you know, Juliette Binoche, who is also brilliant. I, I love them both. The reason I'm bringing up Hugh Pear, however, is she is the star of Madame Bovary and kind of the reason to watch. Uh, essentially, if you know the Bovary story, I was joking when I was watching it. I was just going to call it instead of Madame Bovary. Everybody wants Isabelle Hugh Pear because essentially that's what's going on. She's driving all these men crazy. And of course, it's Isabel Huppert. I mean, she's going to do that as she is wont to do, as they say. That one, you know, it's above average. I wouldn't be really excited to watch it again much, but it, I guess it's worth checking out. It's not Torment, but it's probably my second favorite in the box. Betty, however, is a really good idea. I think it was a Simonin novel, and it it's a really fascinating character study. I love the idea and theory of this like alcoholic woman who's all messed up and is like, you know, rescued or met by these people in a bar, and then they bring her into their dynamic, a couple, and she starts getting jealous, and then they get jealous, and it's like a love triangle, and all this stuff is going on. And it's flashbacks and flash forwards. And it's a really interesting idea in theory, but it's one where I was losing patience with the narrative and how it played out fairly fast. So that one was a bit underwhelming. Again, I, it pains me to say that the Chevrolet box probably isn't worth a hundred bucks unless you have just like money to burn, except for Torment, which I really think you should check out. And interestingly enough, speaking of that article on French language neo-noirs that I wrote for Jed, the next film that was released on Blu-ray this winter is made by a filmmaker whose work I discussed in that piece as well. Also tying in, I just realized uh, I talked about Tell No One in that article starring Clouset. So it all, you know, it's all full circle, you guys. I just totally planned this. Not at all. Okay. So the next movie is called Only the Animals, and it was released by Cohen Media Group on Blu-ray. It's a stunning transfer because it's a new movie. It came out in 2019, technically, but I think with COVID, you know, it would have come out around the time that that hit. So I believe it just played for the first time in New York, like last summer. 
So it's technically new. It was made by Dominic Moll. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I do apologize if I am not. He made a film that I wrote about in that article called With a Friend Like Harry, which if you're a writer, you really need to check out this movie. It is so goddamn eerie, you guys. It's about a writer who, a writer in college, I should say. He's like a married middle-aged man with kids and his wife and they're traveling and there's money stress and, you know, the kids are driving them nuts and they're in the car and they stop at a rest stop and happen upon a man who remembers him from school and reading his work in the literary magazine. And it like changed his life. So suddenly, you know, he's got a new friend and a new friend who's very obsessed with his old writing and his old writerly ambitions and wants more than anything for this guy to figure his life out and get back to writing. And in order to do that, he's willing to do whatever needs to be done. So with a friend like Harry is excellent. Do check it out. It will creep you out, you guys. It's a really cool uh, psychological thriller. Only the Animals was not written by Dominic Mole. It was based on a novel, Soule's Again, I'm butchering that. I do not speak French by Colin Neal. I'm going to read you the summary right off the box because it's kind of complicated. Two depressed farmers, an unfaithful wife, a lovelorn waitress, and an African con artist are drawn together in a mystery surrounding the disappearance of Valeria Bruni Tedeschi's glamorous Evelyn Ducat. The action switches between international locations as the links between the characters are gradually revealed. Stylishly shot and elegantly structured, it finds Maul at the height of his storytelling powers and working with an excellent cast whose characters' motivations call into question the contrast between our public and private lives. And that is essentially the thrust of the film people living different lives online than they are in real life. I get asked that all the time. Like, are you the same person in real life as you are online? I think I'm funnier probably in real life because if I know you well enough, then I'm more comfortable with you. I'm probably shy when you first meet me, but otherwise, yeah, maybe a little funnier, definitely taller. Let's just say that's kind of the, the joke of all time for tall people. Um, but this film, you know, takes a sinister approach to that. Like, are you the same person? Because there are some interesting things going on. There are stories here that you don't really understand the disparate threads until they're woven together. And they're done so in extraordinary ways. You do need to suspend your disbelief, like to the extreme at times, like coincidences run amok in this movie where, oh, they just happen to be at the right place at the right time in the right country. And it's a little ridiculous a few times, but, you know, it is really entertaining. It does also touch on some social issues with, you know, the haves and the have-nots, which class issues uh, is a big interest of mine. So I would say it's, it's a super dark, very twisty movie. Only the animals I would recommend. 
stay with it. You won't know where it's going, but you do need to kind of let yourself go, oh, this is a movie because there's no way person A would intersect with person C in reality. So do keep that in mind for only the animals. Next up, we have a trio of titles from the good people at the Warner Archive Collection. I love this collection of made-on-demand Blu-rays and DVDs. They do a really good job, and they kind of rescue films that have been out of the public eye. Warner Archive is wonderful. And this month, or in the past two months, probably correctly, we have Gold Diggers of 1933, which is a dynamite pre-code musical comedy. It has everything. One of my favorite things about pre-code movies is you go in thinking you know what it is or you know the genre and it might change like 20 times. And also, you know, the filmmaking styles were really gutsy. They were purposely going for the tawdry or the realism of the time period. This was the era of like Scarface and Public Enemy and Babyface. You know, I did an entire episode with the wonderful Sheila O'Malley on pre-code pictures last summer. And she is coming back actually either at the end of March or early April to do another installment of pre-code because we can't get enough. It's a really interesting time for uh, depictions of all kinds of things, especially I feel like women could do more in this period before the Hayes Code was really enforced. Gold Diggers of 1933 is a sexy movie. I mean, there are um, Busby Berkeley numbers, of course, but also, you have in the Busby Berkeley numbers, the film I should say, actually, or I should insert here was directed by Mervyn Leroy, but the musical numbers, of course, are Busby Berkeley. Pettin in the Park is a pretty notorious number. Um, you know, Pettin in the Park, bad boy, bad girl. It's very sexy. It kind of starts with uh, Dick Powell, you know, flirting with the girls. And then by the end of it, they're rain soaked and the women go behind the screen and change. And you see the silhouettes of the nudity. My good friend, Kate Gabrielle, who will be joining us is someone who also loves gold diggers of 33. And she did a great Christmas card of pre-code um, illusions involving Gold Diggers of 33 and the silhouette. I actually sent it to Sheila O'Malley because it was perfect because we both love this film. We might be talking about it in more detail in our next episode. We wind up talking about it no matter what, even if we didn't choose the film. It is that good. I watched it last summer. I loved it and watched it again on this Blu-ray. Also, there's some really interesting things. It's one of those uh, mistaken identity comedy bits where it feels like something I would have seen uh, at like a musical theater growing up in Minnesota. I went to the Chanhassen Dinner Theater or the Old Log Theater quite a bit. My parents loved theater. They went to the Guthrie all the time. And we would go to the Chanhassen and you'd see like 42nd Street. 
think the highlight of my theater going youth was probably seeing Amy Adams before she was, you know, Amy Adams doing Brigadoon and like bringing the house down with her voice. And so years later, when I saw her in like Junebug and in an interview, she talked about doing dinner theater at Chanhassen in Minnesota. I was like, oh my God, the Brigadoon girl. And you could remember her. Long story, very unwieldy, going back to Gold Diggers of 33. It plays like something I would have seen and had a ball with in dinner theater. So if you are somebody or just musical theater who enjoys that kind of thing, you're going to love Gold Diggers of 33. But being a pre-code, it also works in like, as it says on the box, a soul searing number. Remember my forgotten man kind of it is the depression era. Or as Ginger Rogers says in the movie, it's the depression, dearie. And this is post-World War I. So there is quite a subversive number of forgotten men, like in bread lines or trying to earn a living or not sure where to go. And I couldn't help when I watched it thinking that maybe Julie Taymor watched uh, Gold Diggers of 33 before she did the big I want you you're so heavy number in across the universe which was the Beatles jukebox musical which I love that film so do check out gold diggers of 33 next we have song of the thin man which is the final thin man movie with Myrna Loy and William Powell to hit blu-ray from Warner archive I have all of them because I love this series so, so much. This one, of course, is not as good as the rest of the pictures, but I will say if, like me, you're a dog person and you love Asta the dog, you're going to have a ball with this one because Asta actually has a bigger role in Song of the Thin Man than he does in some of the other films. The other upside to this, you have Dean Stockwell, who I adore, and you also have Gloria Graham in this, you know, Gloria Graham playing uh, an essentially Gloria Graham role. I made a joke on Twitter that kind of went like mini viral. I did a screenshot of her sort of making one of her face like said when when Gloria Graham makes this face the shit's about to go down and it does there's a murder and you know William Powell and Myrna Loy need to solve it along with Asta of course lastly we have the three musketeers with Gene Kelly Van Heflin Frank Morgan Vincent Price Keenan Wynn John Sutton Gigi Young Lana Turner June Allison and Angela Lansbury. I wish I could recommend this movie, but guys, it is awful. Oh my God. It is so bad. I love Gene Kelly. Hello. I wrote an entire article about Gene Kelly for DVD Netflix because who doesn't love Gene Kelly? Basically, if you do, I'm not one of those people who says, you know, if you don't like blank, we can't be friends. But if you don't think Gene Kelly is cool, I might question you a little bit. Anyway, this is not one of Gene's best, although because he is such an athletic presence and he knows choreography and he's, you know, charming as fuck. He's really good, especially in the swashbuckling. You could see, you know, had he not been a dancer, though he needs those dance skills to be able to pull this off. 
he would have been a really good like Errol Flynn substitute and maybe not as, you know, notorious as Errol Flynn in other departments. But this movie, oh my gosh, it was 126 minutes. It's a slog. Yeah, I cannot recommend this one. You're going to hear uh, Kate and I tackle another Warner Archive film for you with Stage Fright coming up. But let me go into the last film, which, you know, really needs no introduction, especially if you're a fellow Gen Xer or a millennial. I was born in 81, so I'm kind of like right in the middle, but I relate more to the Gen X era of, you know, pop culture. I don't really know a lot of the other stuff. So I call myself Gen X. But anyway, our film, Wayne's World, turned 30. Are you ready to feel old? 30, you guys. Anyway, uh, Paramount put out a steelbook and, you know, it's gorgeous. There's a commentary track by Penelope Spiris. There is also exclusive cast and crew interviews. I did not check my older edition to see if these were new features. My hunch says they're not because as much as I love Paramount, they do have a tendency to put out their films again and again, kind of take the George Lucas approach. Like, you know, here's a new one with a different cover, but it's the same movie. The big bonus on this one, if you're collecting movies digitally, is it does come with a digital code. So you're not having to buy it twice. If that's your thing, though, Paramount doesn't play well with movies anywhere. So I do need to warn you about that. I think you get to choose between like Voodoo and Apple. So be aware of that. But Wayne's World is one of my favorites. You know, it's just a great satire of consumerism and media right in the heart of like their uh, Dana Carvey and Mike Myers, you know, star power on the rise with SNL. You have Rob Lowe and Tia Carrere. It's a lot of fun. I am probably in the minority of people that actually prefer Wayne's World 2 to Wayne's World, the original. But there's so many good moments in this. I mean, you know, you have the little Bohemian Rhapsody gentleman going on in this movie. And it is a lot of fun. I want to take a moment to give a big shout out to my fellow Wayne's World buddy, Travis Woods, who was going to join me for this discussion, but got way, way too busy at work. So Travis, my pandemic movie buddy, I love you and party on. But without further ado, that's enough for me. Let's bring in my friend. And joining me next is one of my best friends and our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle, a freelance illustrator, blogger, and film fan whose work as a professional artist has included collaborations with the TCM Film Fest, Netflix, Doubleday, and more. You can find Kate's designs at her wonderful shop, kategabrielle.com as well. Kate, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Good. Um, how are you? I am well. How is 2022? A lot like 2021 so far. <laughs> I know. What is time? It's just yeah. kind of one thing after another. Yeah. I, I feel like there was 2019 and then there was something afterwards. Um, yep. And we're just in the middle of that. Exactly. Yeah. It's all just one long continuous year. 
I know. And I keep hitting Kate up to be back on the podcast. So she's like, again, is this no. still 2020? No, I'm just kidding. But yes. <laughs> the same I think thing. I invited myself on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was so excited. I was like, I just got stage fright. I love stage fright. And I'm like, will you come talk? Yes. It was great. <laughs> well, as a classic movie lover, one of your favorite filmmakers I know is Alfred Hitchcock. And on this physical media episode, we are set to discuss one of the master of suspense's most overlooked films, newly released on Warner Archive Blu-ray in an impressive, crisp transfer. It's the droll return to filmmaking in England for Hitchcock with the 1950 work Stage Fright, one of the earliest films I ever saw by the director. I hadn't seen it in close to 30 years and really enjoyed giving this one another look. Rather than sum it up on my own, I'll share the summary straight from the back of the box. In Alfred Hitchcock's world, theaters are where danger stalks the wings, characters are not what they seem, and that final curtain can drop any second. The droll stage fright springs from that entertaining tradition. Jane Wyman plays drama student Eve Gill, who tries to clear a friend, Richard Todd, being framed for murder by becoming the maid of flamboyant stage star Charlotte Inwood, Marlena Dietrich. Filming in his native England, Hitchcock merrily juggles elements of humor and whodunit and puts a game ensemble, Alistair Sim, Sybil Thorndike, Joyce Greenfell, Kay Walsh, and daughter Patricia Hitchcock through its paces. No one turns a theater into a bastion of dread like Hitchcock and stage fright is proof positive. And the special features on this one include a really cool making of documentary Hitchcock and stage fright that opens with Peter Bogdanovich and Robert Osborne. And it was quite the like whiplash when you're watching this because we've lost both of those wonderful sources of film knowledge. But it was a really good uh, documentary. It was short and included a lot of affectionate memories on the making of this from Patricia Hitchcock. And I believe a couple clips of Jane Wyman as well. So I recommend that. And Kate, I know you love the film, so I will let you take it away on stage fright. I just, I think you said it's very underrated. You, it is. You, yeah, yeah you, you hardly ever hear this come up when people talk about their favorites or the best. It might not be the best, but it should be on more people's favorites list, I think. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun. And I love yeah. the, we're going to get into some spoilery territory here, but I think even just saying it, you can still enjoy the film. It involves a fake flashback or a story someone is telling of their version of events. Maybe they don't know, I'm not gonna go there or what really happened, but I think it's a brilliant way to set up the movie. It caused some controversy when it came out. Um, Hitchcock said it was later, one of the greatest mistakes he ever made was including the snake flashback because it does lead the audience into thinking that they can completely maybe trust somebody or maybe they shouldn't. Um, I thought it was really clever. Did you see any of that coming the first time you watched it? Oh, it's hard to remember at this point. I watched okay. it a, a long time ago. I, think I know I was, for me, it yeah, was, I, yeah. 
Um, I mean, even before I liked classic movies, my parents have always been huge Hitchcock fans. So before it became an obsession for me, Hitchcock yeah. was like a part of my life from when I was born. <laughs> oh, that's so, so cool. I, I definitely watched this at a very early age. And then even um, like as a teenager, I used to watch it a lot. And I I have no memory of <laughs> my first impressions at this point. But I, I know I. Every time I watch it, though, I get wrapped up in the story and I'll sort of like you buy into the, yes, you know, the um, misleading parts of it. And you just sort of find yourself like believing Richard Todd all the time, yeah. even though you really shouldn't. <laughs> you should question everything. Yes, yeah, exactly. I know. I think what I remembered, there were a few scenes that I remembered, um, especially the end. Um, mm. with the, the thing in the stage, uh, the, the curtain that comes down. My goodness. That's, that's actually kind of a spoiler on the back of the DVD. Um, yes. Like, where it says when the curtain falls, that's the end of the movie, technically. I know. They're being Someone is going to get killed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. With the curtain. It's, we're not saying who, but yeah. yeah, maybe we have to call our friends over at uh, Warner Brothers and go, what are you doing, guys? No. Yeah, but, that's a little yeah. wink to everybody who's already seen it before they bought the DVD. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you're just like going sight unseen and then you're like, what? <laughs> yes. No. And I also I love the chemistry between uh, the characters, especially Jane Wyman and Michael Wilding yes. is very good. My goodness. Ordinary Smith. Ordinary Smith. Such a cute little uh, name she gives him. Very good. Yeah. I, I also have to talk about Alistair Sim. Yes. <laughs> I, please he, do. Yeah. He might just be one of my or he is one of my favorite characters in the Hitchcock movie and might be one of my favorite characters in a movie. He's just so great. Um, yes. Yes. I, I mean, I like him in everything I've literally like ever watched him in, but mm -hmm. um, he's just so good here. He has so much, he, he just seems like he's getting so much delight out of this role. Yeah, he really is. It's, it's another one of those um, father daughter situations, uh, which is interesting because you've got Hitchcock and his real life daughter. Although mm -hmm. I do have to say, I take some issue with the name that I guess Hitchcock was responsible for giving her uh, chubby banister is the yeah. name uh, that he gave for Patricia Hitchcock. Um, because he said winkingly, I guess, uh, she's a girl you could lean on. But he did think very highly of his daughter. She did the quote unquote danger driving for Jane Wyman. She got to do the oh. stunt driving, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, so I, uh, I guess, yeah, from afar, she looked enough like Jane Wyman that it's like, well, Patricia wants to do it and she can do it. And uh, so I do love that. But yeah, the chubby factor, we're not digging. But mm -hmm. Alistair Sim is really good. Um, there are so many great scene stealers in this movie. I think yeah. the British humor that kind of seeps in throughout, it reminds me of those great British movies from the 30s uh, that he made, like Lady Vanishes and 39 Steps, where some of the humor is in there. And I think it'd been a while since we'd seen that side of him. So this might've been a nice return for him and also set up sort of the fifties, which did get a little bit funnier or touches of humor would work yeah. themselves in. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I love this one is 
that it's a lot more light. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, it's one of his darkest endings, but the, yes. but the movie <laughs> as a whole is just so much lighter. And a lot of scenes remind me of Young and Innocent, which is one of my other favorites. Um, That's like, right. Yeah, like in Young and Innocent, I love the um, the birthday party, the whole birthday party sequence where he keeps changing his name and he brings in one of her own garden gnomes as a present. It's just, oh, that's good. It's just very fun. And this has a lot of that sort of same humor in it. I love like Marlena Dietrich constantly getting the name wrong for Doris. Yes. Um, You know, and when Alistair Sim cuts his hand and looks like he's going to faint. (laughs) yeah he almost passes out while trying (laughs) to help yeah I will say the one thing that just like baffled my mind was um the whole why are they trying to help this guy so much that was like you're supposed to the family yes it's because Eve loves him I know yeah (laughs) I guess the things you do for love the stupid things you do for um somebody she's not even dating it's a big crush that she has on this guy who is responsible or might be responsible for a murder but might be blamed and he might be one of the Hitchcock innocent men and so she's just you know putting it out there and bringing dad involved and the dad just that's again a reason you love the character he just goes right along with it like well okay even after you know a dress hits the fire that might have helped uh, exonerate or clear him if yeah or might have incriminated we don't know yet and um you know dad it's like well my daughter loves him clearly i'm helping my daughter out which is yeah just, yeah good it, i think it is right from the beginning i think alistair sim is definitely skeptical that he that this guy's innocent but he loves his daughter so much it's like if well if put. she yeah if she has faith in him then i do you know yes, but definitely <laughs> not not completely trusting of richard no. todd's character yeah, I think he is kind of constantly questioning him, which is yeah. interesting. But, you know, willing to, well, if she wants me to do this, I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. Like in Goodfellas, which Kate and I were just talking about off air, you know, hide the gun. She's going to hide the gun, basically. Yep. <laughs> Things you do for love. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, I love, too, how observant he is. Like even when um, Michael Wilding is playing the piano. And Jane mm-hmm. Wyman is looking at, at him and Alistair Sim is just like, uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> I see what's going on here. Yep. She's her, yeah, affections <laughs> are shifting. And he's probably starting to think, what am I gonna have to do for this guy now? No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is accused of bank robbery. No, that would be the sequel, stage fright two. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's before this. No, but it's it's very delightful. Marlena Dietrich has the best costumes. My goodness. Yes. She has some great musical performances. The laziest gal in town, which was Cole Porter song. Um, I guess it was a little risque. So he had to rewrite a lyric uh, because the studio balked or something. So it was uh, a song that she would wind up singing for years later, became one of her standards. And her good friend Edith Piaf let her sing Le'Veon Rose as a favor. So that's in here too. So there's some good musical numbers. It's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, there's so, Hitchcock made so many great movies, like almost, almost all of them. There's a couple that aren't great, but like almost all of them are. a few, right? 
yeah, I would say like under Capricorn is not mm-hmm. amazing. Mr. Yeah. And Mrs. Smith, like I know it's a comedy and it's not, you know, not part of his normal, yes. um, you know, genre, but it's not the best comedy. Um, no. yeah. and I love Robert Montgomery so much, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, just not the best. Those, those are the only two of like his movies from like, I when you think torn of like curtain maybe wasn't my favorite. Oh, yeah. 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 Torn curtain. Only a couple. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part from when he like really started like making it big in England in the thirties until the end of mm-hmm. his career, that span, there's really only like maybe three or four movies where I don't yeah. think they're that great. Um, but like this, this one just gets overlooked so much. Um, because I think it's because he made so many that are amazing. Like yes. if, if you're thinking about the birds or psycho or North by Northwest, mm-hmm. it's hard to like, remember that stage frights in there, but yeah, it's known as like a minor work quote, unquote. Yeah. but you know, minor works are fun and they can be mm-hmm. still just as gorgeously well-crafted as this movie and as twisty and you know it's more power to him he managed to do this in the same like this was a few years after he made my goodness I forget the year that notorious was but it was Mm -hmm. a couple years after rope I did notice that there were some long takes in this one and you can kind of see it was maybe some hangover effect from uh his work on rope with the long takes they aren't 10 minutes long but they're maybe longer than average Mm -hmm. and yeah it kind of is a good lead-in to like i was saying blending humor and weaving it into sort of the mystery and suspense that he would become synonymous with in his golden age period there with rear window and leading right into North by Northwest as well. This kind of seems like one, if you'd like North by Northwest, you might like stage fright a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think if this had been in color, I kind of wonder if it might've been classified more with those because um, like it, it has a feel about it where visually it reminds me more of his earlier movies because of the, um, like it's in black and white and it's in England and there's yes. just something about it that reminds you of like, like we were saying, like young and innocent and mm-hmm. um, like the lady vanishes, but the, there's something about it that is very fifties Yeah, that like, if it had that clean, the way that he did color design and very like stark imagery in his yeah. movies where it's not cluttered you know, just, um, I'm, I'm specifically thinking of like North by Northwest where it's all just very like Edward Hopper-ish, um, you know, and if it had that kind of visual, I wonder if that would have made it stand out a little more to people. That's a really good point. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think this was made back to back with his other one in England, Strangers on a Train, which also had, um, Patricia Hitchcock or I was right around there. And, you know, night and day, another, another great one, uh, strangers on a train that kind of gets overlooked a little bit. Yeah. I wonder if that too, there's like, I mean, you said rope came before both of them, right? Yeah. Um, and he went back to black and white, uh, for these. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I personally like black and white. I'm not knocking. Oh it. yeah. <laughs> like, of course. But I just wonder if, um, it would have a different, effect on people if they had been in color 
Absolutely. Yes. With the exception of Psycho, of course, you are so right. And that's a really good point, Kate. Strangers on a Train was right after this in 1951. Also, yeah. To Catch a Thief, this kind of, again, with a flirtation with a possible criminal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I like think... you sort of think of that in that like North by To Catch a Thief yeah. is like North by Northwest yes. and you know, that like very clean look Mm -hmm. um, in color. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, just wondering. I think you're right. Yeah. Like there's just something about stage fright that doesn't seem to grab people. And I just want to figure out what it is. Exactly. (laughs) Cause it's just, I think it's so good. I think it is a fun one. It was, you know, the adaptation because it was from a novel by Selwyn Jepson was co-written by Alma Reville, who was his wife and co-wrote or worked on some of his best films, especially his early ones back in England. So yeah, it is a nice throwback to those, but also a good precursor to, as we mentioned, the ones that he is most famous for, but it deserves more attention, I think. Yeah. Actually, can I read just this one thing? Um, of course. From, from the trailer. Uh, I just thought this was really a fun way to like describe the movie. They said it has a very dead body, a very heavenly body, a very suspicious body, and finally, a very charming busybody. I just, <laughs> I, I thought I that was that. so cute. Yes. And obviously, you know, they played, you know, they said that over clips, you know, like Marlena Dietrich is the heavenly body and Jane Wyman is the busy body. But it was just, (laughs) I just thought it was such a fun way to describe this movie. It really is. Yeah. I miss trailers like that, that were really catchy. You know, I mean, it seems like there's always a different period going on with trailers. Like I came of age in the, in a world trailer (laughs) phase where you would sort of where right is wrong and up is down and left is right like that was (laughs) but there's something about these busy bodies these puns yeah you miss that for sure it was really fun it's like if anybody's think you know not sure if they want to watch the movie and you google the trailer I think it's a good um invitation to watch it very much yeah what did you think of Jane Wyman I love her in this. I actually, I really, I like her in general. Um, Mm -hmm. I think she kind of had an unfortunate haircut in the fifties, but outside of that, I just, I think she's a really just like cute actress and, and she's so perfect for this role. Like her, every time that she is trying to be a serious actress as this character is just so fun. When she's when she's like in the bar and trying to like pretend that she's feeling the journalist and yeah, yeah, the constant (laughs) passing out. That was great. Yeah. And and then when she like is pretending to be Doris to help, um, you know, help Richard Todd and I the whole entire thing at the garden party where she has to be like herself and be Doris, like almost at the same time. It was just wonderful. I just thought it was so good. Yeah. And and I thought really she had good. really great chemistry with everybody. Like she mm-hmm. seems like she legitimately loves Richard Todd. She has great chemistry with Michael Wilding like when they're in the car and Yeah. Um and then with the the peop- the actors who play her parents. It was just she's just really great in this. Yes. Also Michael is. Wilding. I just wish he had been in a lot more movies and been more of like I an international star. Yeah. You think yeah. being married to Elizabeth Taylor would have done that for him? <laughs> 
I know that should have really set this up. Um, yeah. You can really see that charm. Like, oh, he would be somebody that Elizabeth Taylor would fall for. He had an affair with uh, Marlena Dietrich during the making of the film. So oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. So wow. in the little in the backseat of the, of the cab there, we did see some of the chemistry going on. And yeah, no wonder all these women were falling for this guy. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah he's great yeah and I also I feel like it's totally understandable that after you've seen Richard Todd and then you see Michael Wilding you're like who was that of other course guy? you're trading up <laughs> yes <laughs> you're like well he might be a killer but also who's this guy yeah or, he can or, play or the piano yeah or it's like thank god he's a killer because this just solves my whole problem <laughs> exactly yes now I don't feel as bad yes. yeah yeah <laughs> He can go to jail or get, you know, whatever yeah. happens to him. And I could just yes. go off happily with Michael Wilding. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody wins, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> except maybe, yeah. Yeah. Well, also, except maybe the parents, because they can't smuggle alcohol anymore. <laughs> That's true. With Not yeah. with a detective in the family. <laughs> I know. I love that. It's such a scrappy story that you, out of nowhere, you're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would have loved a whole sequel just on the parents. The parents are so irresistible. Yeah. Yes. I know. That's one thing I love about Hitchcock. Even like the bit players are just as interesting as the lead. Sometimes even yeah. more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my favorite character in Rear Window is Thelma Ritter. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has a habit of doing that. I, I think that this one, there's like so many people who are just amazing. It's a really stacked cast. It really is. And always, always a delight when Patricia Hitchcock shows up in any of his movies. I know. She mm. is so good. And yeah, almost drives away with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what we're saying is you got to check out Stage Fright. Are there yes. any other thoughts you want to share on this one? Just don't let it be an overlooked Hitchcock. If you've overlooked it before, fix that. Yes. I know all these bodies and his body of work to go back to the trailer (laughs) and everybody Google that trailer. And I will link to it when I upload this because it sounds wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. 
This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.